When I was first over in Italy, I had the opportunity to go up to Lago Maggiore area and study Italian. It's in the northern part of Italy. And there's a monastery up there, a Benedictine nun monastery, that we got invited to go to to celebrate Mass with some other priests. So we were just going to con-celebrate. And you come into the monastery, and of course, since it's a, it's a convent for Benedictine nuns, you don't get to go anywhere you want. Here's the door you go in, and it leads right to the sacristy. So in we went, go into the sacristy, and you hear beautiful music, chanting, Gregorian chant, and I, I just thought to myself, oh, they're playing a CD. Well, it turns out it was actually the sisters in the chapel already chanting. When we got ready for Mass and it was time for Mass, it was kind of arranged like this. So the, the sisters were in their stalls that were arranged kind of in a fan like this, but stacked up. And there's probably 12 rows, and there's maybe 80 to 90 of these sisters, all in their black habits and everything, young and old. And we processed in from this side, and the altar's here, and you know, you're going through Mass. And at a certain point, I realized that in front of the communion rail, it's a centuries-old monastery, so there was still this communion rail that separated the sanctuary from where the nuns were sitting. In front of that, there's this very large Easter candle that's lit. And yet I noticed that the base of it is this sister kneeling, holding on, to this Easter candle. So she's kneeling there, head bowed, holding on to the Easter candle, and she has a noose around her neck. And I thought, wow, I wonder what she did. Because <laughs> that's, that's pretty severe. So Mass goes on, and now I'm paying as much attention to her more than I should probably, just to see, you know, does she get up? Is she going to come to communion? Nope. Stayed there the whole time. All through Mass, never moved. So, of course, afterwards you have to ask, what's, what's up with the sister with the noose? <laughs> and it turns out that this particular group of Benedictine sisters have vowed themselves to make continual reparation for sin. And so one of the sisters kneels there for an, they take hour and a half shifts and 24 7 365 days a year there's one of the nuns kneeling there praying to make reparation for sin in general sin in the world in a sense upholding the world by their prayer I later several years later had a chance to visit Dachau, the first of the concentration camps right outside of Munich. And right outside the gate, and actually you can walk from the yard into this area, there's a Carmelite monastery, Carmelite nuns. And the Carmelites took it upon themselves following the war to establish these convents in proximity to these camps to pray by prayer to repair, by prayer to call down goodness on those areas which had experienced and knew so much evil. 
And so their ministry was one of lifting their voices up to God on behalf of humanity day after day, seeking to repair what they could there. Another experience I had, it's funny, it's only the nuns that I experienced praying like this for some reason. But another experience I had of sisters at prayer, um, when I first went and celebrated Mass for the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa's sisters in Rome. And it's a, it's a small chapel, and uh, you walk in the back, and the, the altar's up in front. And I walked in, and over here on the right-hand side, close to the wall, there was one of the sisters on the floor, bent over. She looked old and praying. And, and they don't have any chairs, any pews. It's just a bare floor and the altar. So there she was. You don't want to disturb her, so, you know, over to the sacristy I go. Mass starts, come out, all the other sisters in there, about 40 or 50 of them. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I see her still over there praying. So, you know, you don't want to draw attention to it, and you certainly don't want to stare at her. But all through Mass, she didn't do anything. She didn't get up. She just stayed very hunched over with her sorry kind of pulled over her head and, and, and praying. After Mass, the sacristy door's over on this side, and she's still over there. She hasn't moved, it seems. So out the door I go. A couple weeks later, I have Mass there again and come back, and I get there earlier than the sisters do in terms of them being in the chapel, and I come in, and there's that sister again. I get to look, and it turns out it's a statue. Because <laughs> now, by now I was curious enough to, curious enough to say, this, this sister's always there. Well, it turns out it's a statue of Mother Teresa. And it's carved in such a way and painted that, I mean, it looks real. If, if, you, know, if you don't pay too close attention to it. And, and that, that was how Mother would pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament, they said. Hunched over like that, curl, I mean, on her knees, but curled up, and, and that was how she would pray for hours. My final story in terms of prayer is, is that when guys come to the seminary, we have prayer with them, what's called the Liturgy of the Hours, in the morning, at midday, in the evening, and then at night. Because when they get ordained, they take a promise to pray the prayer of the church, the liturgy of the hours, on behalf of all those who, because of the busyness of their lives, because of what they are engaged in in their own work in the kingdom, does not afford them the opportunity to take time out in the middle of the day and pray. So in this diocese, the priest and the deacons, the religious as well, when they are ordained, they make a promise to pray for everyone, to pray for the church. And at the seminary, we hope to train them to do just that. So every day, you are all prayed for by those that are hopefully to one day be priests. I bring those things up because in our gospel today, in our other readings, we see that prayer, although we don't perhaps believe it, sustains the world. We don't know how, 
But the insistence with, with, with which Jesus admonishes us to pray, but even more specifically, his own life of prayer in connection with the Father, points to the fact that somehow this holding on to God in prayer sustains the world. If we read the scriptures, which are good for all instruction and admonishment, we see that throughout, it is this connection of prayer, of offering to God, of staying in contact with God, that sustains life, real life. I suspect that at the end of our lives, when we see God face to face, we will be amazed at the power of prayer at what it has accomplished in the world, what it creates, both interior to us, but also really in the world. Was anybody who was paying attention at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, was anybody shocked at the peacefulness with which the second largest empire, if you want to call it that, in the world, the most oppressive regime in terms of internationally in the world, the peacefulness with which that collapsed. And yet it is the power of prayer, as our Blessed Mother at Fatima admonished us to, and all those people throughout the years who prayed for the conversion of Russia, and all those rosaries said throughout those years, which lead to the fact that this most violent of regimes collapses peacefully. Who did not think of Fatima as the Berlin Wall came down? We see in our first reading, when the Israelites are waged in a war with Amalek, and Moses goes up and raises his arms, and as long as Moses is in prayer, they have the better of the battle. As long as the Catholic community in the world keeps its arms raised in prayer, the world will have the better, or the faith will have the better of the battle. We can think about it in those terms. We can also think about it in terms of our own interior life. The war that we rage day in and day out with the frustrations of life, with the demands that are made upon us, with the own smallness of our own hearts, our own selfishness and weakness. The battle goes on. We're engaged in it. And yet, as long as we keep our arms raised in prayer, we will have the better of the struggle. That's what the Lord is telling us. When we let our arms drop, though, it will go against us. We know that when we pray, we are entering into a faith conversation. We're asking the Lord in faith to hear us. The fact is, it seems many times the Lord does not, and that the Lord doesn't answer directly. Now, of course, we have our Lord's words in the gospel. I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. But then we also hear the Lord say as a challenge, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What type of faith is it that leads to our prayers being answered? That's the question. 
What has to be in our hearts? What has to be up and running such that when we pray, we are heard and answered speedily? I often think when my own prayers aren't answered speedily, which is often, I often think of St. Scholastica and the famous story of her in conversation with her brother, Benedict. They only got together now and then to have a conversation. Benedict says, Scholastica, it's time to go. He was probably tired of talking to her. She says, I want to continue talking. He says, no, the monastery says I have to go back up the hill and be in. She bends her head down and prays. A storm breaks out, such violent thunder, lightning, and rain that they can't move from where they're at. Benedict looks at her and says, what have you done? And she says, I asked you, you said no. I asked Jesus, he said yes. <laughs> A prayer immediately answered. But what, what kind of heart has Scholastica and in fact Benedict formed that has that type of familiarity that even the rain is within there, in a sense, asking. As we think about that, I would suggest just one thing. We look at the structure, what we ask for in the Lord's Prayer, what the Lord taught us to pray, how to ask. Point number one, we ask that His will be done not ours. When we pray persistently, are we persistently asking for God's will to be done or are we asking for our own will to be done? The second thing is give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need or are we asking for what we want? Wants and needs are different and really it has to do with sufficiency and not abundance. So are we asking for abundance or are we asking for sufficiency, what we truly need? And the third thing is that we be forgiven as we forgive. Now that's the most dangerous prayer you can say. Whatever I measure out, measure back to me. If our prayers aren't answered speedily, readily, we might begin to ask ourselves, and I'm not saying it's cause and effect necessarily. I'm just saying we might want to begin to ask ourselves, if I'm asking the Lord to be generous with me, how generous am I with others? If I'm asking for forgiveness from others, how quickly am I to forgive? If I'm asking the Lord for peace in my life, how quickly am I recognized as one who actually gives peace to others. What is it that I'm asking the Lord for that I'm reluctant to actually give to those who are in my life? If we ask those questions, I think our prayer will change. We might actually become more hesitant to pray. Because if we pray for what we truly need, if we really pray for God's will to be done, and if we really pray that what we measure out to others, that the Lord measures out to us, we cannot help but our hearts change. 
we cannot help but that our prayer changes. And I think we cannot help but pray always and persistently because we will have come to know the real power of prayer.